He says, a right is something that must, in capital letters, must be provided. This is ridiculous. This is a subjective notion of rights. If, if a right is something that must be provided, then anyone's notion of something that must or should or ought need be provided can be considered a right. Welcome to the Lions of Liberty podcast. Here is your host, your guide, your shining beacon of liberty, Mark Clare. This is the Lions of Liberty podcast, episode 123. You can find the show notes for today's show at lionsofliberty.com slash 123. Election season is underway and there's no better way to express your political views than with the awesome satirical shirts, mugs, and other accessories you can find over at libertymaniacs.com. Lions of Liberty listeners get 10% off your entire order by using the code LIONSOFLIBERTY. Health insurance rates are set to skyrocket once again in 2015, thanks to Obamacare regulations, but there is another path. And our friends at Health Excellence Select are here to show you the way. Learn more at lionsofliberty.com slash health. All right, my guest today is a young libertarian blogger. He has interned at the Mises Institute, the Independent Institute, and the Charles Koch Foundation. He currently blogs at ryandgriggs.com svbtl.com. Ryan Griggs, welcome to the Lions of Liberty podcast. Thanks, Mark. Great to be on with you. Well, Ryan, it's good to have you on. And as we were talking before the show, you're not quite the youngest person I've ever had on the show, but you are, um, you know, in the younger end of the demographic. And I'm always glad to have people on who are sort of, I know, because when I was your age, I wasn't really into any of this stuff. I was really just kind of doing my own thing. So I always like that I see when I when younger people that, you know, around your age are really getting active out there blogging, out there talking about these issues. So that's really great to see. So and well, you recently, um, you know, did a blog post about referencing Austin Peterson's interview with Tom Woods regarding the minarchy versus anarchy debate, criticizing a lot of his points. And, and that's the main thing we'll talk about today. Uh, but before we get into that, I just want to learn a little bit more about you. So why don't you just tell us how you first became interested in the ideas of of liberty. Sure. So I was pretty apolitical through high school. Uh, when I first started in college at New York University, I finally looked up and started to hear some of, of Ron Paul's previous YouTube. So the great debate, the Giuliani moment, that had all occurred in 2008. Here I was in 2010, sort of rediscovering all of it. And for me, I like to see how people came to these ideas and so I'll give you a little sort of a track record so it was with Ron Paul first and then I found LouRockwell.com and then the writings of Murray Rothbard and then the Mises Institute and once I read Rothbard's America's Great Depression there was really no looking back so Ron Paul really got the ball rolling for you I guess what were you probably you were in high school I guess uh, what it was 15 16 or so when that stuff started happening yeah, and I mean, like I said, I was pretty apolitical. I did a lot of basketball and a debate thing called mock trial in high school and in college, too. So I wasn't too concerned with politics or, or any sort of big idea that might affect the nation or affect all of our lives. So, yeah, it, it sort of flew over my head at that point. I didn't, I didn't really get interested until 2010. So that's, what, four and a half, going on five years now. 
Very cool. Yeah, I mean, like I said, I couldn't have been less interested in this stuff in high school and co- and somewhat in college. I guess I started to get interested because that that is when I actually started reading Ron Paul's work before, well before he was ever running for president. But even then, he was just a guy whose writing I found interesting. I wasn't really thinking about any sort of deeper political thought or deeper political landscape to that. So I'm glad that people like you have such a head start on me on this stuff <laughs> and are out there talking about this stuff. You know, so much of it, though, is, is the education system in this country. I mean, parents, I, I address some of it in one of my articles on my website, but, you know, parents are, are penalized with fines or imprisonment if they don't send their children off to their local education camps. And, you know, you're not going to hear this sort of thing in, in a, a fifth grade classroom or in middle school or in high school. So it's really no surprise that anybody, and I don't know what your background is, uh, but you know, I came up in the public education system, and it's really no surprise that I, I heard nothing of this. And even in college, in my first year at NYU, it was, you know, I didn't hear about Austrian economics in my economics classes or libertarianism in my political philosophy classes. This is something I had to come upon myself. And I think that's really probably the story a lot of people would tell who, who came to these ideas. They had to go outside the conventional educational institutions and the establishment to, to learn of these ideas. Absolutely, yeah. I, I too was raised on the the public education system, and it's it's really mind-blowing when you sit back and think about it as an adult, the type of things that aren't even brought up in public school. Yeah, I mean, even besides just politics or libertarianism, I mean, they didn't even tell me how to balance a checkbook in public school. Thank God I had good parents who taught me a lot of the basic stuff. But I can totally see how people that might not have that support system at home would go to public schools and come out really completely unprepared for the real world, completely unprepared to think critically. And I think that is really, in many ways, the biggest issue we have in communicating our politics and sort of coming to our political ideas, not just us, but you know, people in general, is that we're not really taught to think critically. We're not really taught to use reason and logic. Uh, in many ways, public school just seems to foster thinking with our emotions. And, and that's kind of how, in many ways, how we've gotten to where we are. Well, you know, you mentioned that they're essentially training people to think with their emotions. I argue in an op-ed I wrote for a website called Truth Voice about sort of my theory of, of state education. And I think it's, it's not just encouraging you to think with your emotions, but just to not think. Right. Uh, I think in the Peterson article, I mentioned a, a Sherman's march on rational thought. <laughs> and I like that phrase. Yeah, I think that's institutionalized in state education. It's no surprise that they don't focus on teaching people how to think, but instead want to teach people what to think. Like with Common Core now, the recommended list of reading materials are executive orders and uh, new environmental regulations. Wait, really? Is that part of Common Core? They actually make people read like executive orders? I didn't, I didn't know that. A lot of what Common Core is now is that they want to just set standards that the ostensibly they, you know, they say they don't want to tell teachers to tell school districts the exact content that has to be taught. They just want to set the standard and then teachers and school districts can choose their own content to then meet those standards. But the recommendations to all of these school districts are things like executive orders and new environmental regulations. Wow. I had no idea about that. I mean, I only understand Common Core in a very sort of vague manner, you might say. Uh, I just know that it's probably bad because it's dictated upon schools around the country. But uh, every time I discuss it, I find out something weird and quirky. Like, I had never heard that they're trying to make kids read environmental regulations. That seems... Oh, there's a great book called Crimes of the Educators. It's brand new. I forget the author's name, but there's two authors, one who's a, an educator and one who's a, a journalist, and it goes through this whole thing. I'd, I'd recommend that if anybody wanted to learn more about it. 
Cool. Definitely check it out now. I actually came upon your blog first due to an article you wrote in response to Austin Peterson's debate with Tom Woods regarding the minarchy versus anarchy debate. As you know, as a guy who's been involved in this movement for some time, this is a debate that is essentially never ending. But I do think it's an important one, and some people don't. Some people think we just need to, you know, all hold hands and sing kubaya and, and advance liberty. And I agree with that in an extent. I'll, I'll always sort of um, hold hands and join up with people that share similar political views in order to advance certain things. At the same time, once we're all done with that, when we uh, maybe head to the bar afterwards, I'm still going to have that conversation about about what is right and what is wrong and what, what our true vision of a quote-unquote free society should be. Should be. So I'm, I'm glad you are continuing this conversation here with this article you wrote about Austin Peterson. I spoke with him on the show a couple weeks ago to give him a chance to really lay out why he believes the way he is a little bit further and why he labels himself a minarchist. I believe, at least from your writing, you do label yourself an anarcho-capitalist. So why don't we start there first? Why don't you just explain what anarcho-capitalism is to you and why you associate with that as opposed to minarchism or whatever else someone, other people in libertarianism might label themselves as. Sure. So to be just very clear about it, I'd call myself an Austro-libertarian, so someone who's a student of Austrian economics and then also simultaneously a student of libertarianism. Of course, the two are different. And then I I would also identify as an anarcho-capitalist in the tradition of Murray Rothbard. So you go on Mises.org or whatever and read up on all of this. Uh, The Ethics of Liberty uh, is a great work. You can find that online. He details a lot of this. So my view is really motivated by an understanding of natural law. And it's really timely that you wanted to discuss this too. I'm doing an online course to complete my undergraduate degree. And the first question they ask us to write an essay about is, what is law? Oh, perfect for you. Right. And the instructor's notes, of course, he has his definition, and he says law is a set of rules that government requires everyone to live by. So my essay is going to be in opposition to that. I think that's ridiculous. The law precedes the state. Legislation is not law. So going back to the French classical liberal school, mid-1850s, like in 1850, we had Bastiat's little essay, The Law. And this is a history tradition of identifying the natural order of things prior to the state, right? So preceding the state. Bastiat's very particular. He says liberty, property, and person, your personality, so your livelihood, your, you know, the life, your, your own life. That individuals have a natural right to those things, that, that any infringement upon a person's property, which includes himself, is a violation of, of natural law. So this requires one to come to the conclusion that state action, legislation namely, is a distortion, a violation, a destruction of natural law, of law properly defined, of rights properly defined. And in Austin Peterson's article, he, he sort of talks about this. He, in five reasons why I'm not an anarchist on the Libertarian Republic's website, which I link to in my article, he says, a right is something that must, in capital letters, must be provided. Well, this is, this is ridiculous. Uh, th- this is a subjective notion of rights. If, if a right is something that must be provided, then anyone's notion of something that must or should or ought need be provided can be considered a right. Um, in Tom Woods' interview with him, he, Woods hammers the point home that Peterson's conceptions of rights would allow for uh, positive rights to food, right? So uh, under Peterson's system of thought, individuals have a right to food. And, and 
this means they have a right to seize this food from somebody else. Um, I elaborate further that this is the problem of the conception of rights as positive rights rather than negative rights. So in the libertarian conception of rights, rights are negative. You as an individual have a right not to be killed. You have a right not to have your property infringed upon by other aggressive actors. And this notion of positive rights versus negative rights is totally lost in his conception. So I elaborate that. The the piece kind of got pretty long, but um, I have a lot of issues with it. We mentioned positive rights. I think the big example they were discussing with Austin Peterson on the Tom Woods show was this example of a child and whether the parent has basically it's, it's the right of the child to be provided food by the parent. So what, what's your view on that, first of all? Because I know Tom Woods and R- Murray Rothbard even have different views on that. Yeah, the, and in fact, children in libertarian political philosophy, the, the whole subject of children is very complex. It's this notion that, you know, when does an individual sort of become an individual, per se? When, when does a living being have these natural rights? This is something that I've worked with less, so I I may not be the best one to talk to about it. But I believe Rothbard's notion is that as soon as an individual desires or requires or is able to state that they are an individual, that they have those rights, as soon as they claim them, in other words, then the entire edifice of libertarian law would apply to them just as it does to uh, adults like you and me. So it's difficult to say. Now, I think Peterson's accusation that libertarian anarchists like myself would be all for parents killing off children or, and we'd have no base to reject that, I think that's, that's fallacious. I think that's false. Um, Woods makes the argument that you know, if you bring somebody into your care, I think his example is if Woods were to invite Peterson into Woods' house, then... Of course, Woods doesn't get to harvest Peterson's organs. You know, he doesn't get to perpetuate whatever sort of property rights violations he would want. Uh, he's obligated to uh, not, do, not commit property rights violations uh, because he has invited Peterson into his home. So I think he, Woods wanted to do was apply that example to parenthood. So when an adult brings into this world a child, that adult, that individual uh, is obligated not to commit uh, wrongful acts to the child, to violate that child's property, so to speak, his his body and anything else. Um, So I think the accusation that libertarian anarchists get children wrong is is not necessarily true. I I certainly don't think it's a reason to adopt the minarchist position. It obviously does need to be elaborated more, but I I don't think it's grounds for rejecting libertarian anarchism. Sure, and I I think that we have to kind of make a distinction between, you know, having principles and then realizing that applying these principles in real life will have nuance, and there's nothing wrong with discussing the nuance. I think that's very necessary to explain things to people, and it's not always black and white. It is a difficult issue because, in my view, a parent that has a child, let's say he's a baby and the child is three months old, clearly cannot fend for themselves – that parent cannot just, like, put the baby in a corner and not feed her to give it water for a year until it dies. Obviously, it wouldn't take a year, but until it dies. Uh, right, that, right. To me, that's clearly a violation of that baby's rights or the child's rights or whatever you want to call it. 
Uh, at the same time, obviously, at some point in life, we can decide, all right, well, this this baby, this child is now an adult. I mean, obviously, when he's 35 years old, I mean, there's I don't think that my parents should be forced to be sending me a check for food every month or, you know, sending me food in the mail or what have you. So there is a point on kind of an extreme on each end where it seems ridiculous. And I think that's kind of what we have to sort of parse out. And there's not necessarily a right answer. I mean, I discuss this with Walter Block, too. It's kind of a continuum where we can have a principle, but then when we actually try to apply it, there's not necessarily a definitive day when now this this child doesn't deserve to have food provided to him, and there's not really a day. He is the sort of the example of consensual sex. I mean, all of us, at least, well, I mean, maybe some, not the criminals in our society, or, or the most sick people in our society, believe that a five-year-old cannot consent to a sex. Uh, mm-hmm. And almost all of us agree that a 25-year-old can consent to sex. However, when we're talking about a 14-year-old or a 15-year-old or a 16-year-old, well, that's when things get kind of murky. Now, we have laws that sort of arbitrarily in certain states dictate certain ages where where now consent can occur. Right. But really, there's no way to say how those laws necessarily came about. And in some ways, it's probably just the capacity of each individual person. And that's really hard to judge in sort of a, a sort of a broad brush kind of way. Right. And therein lies another reason to support the anarchist position of taking the provision of the service of law enforcement outside the realm of the state and into the private market. As Murray Rothbard elaborates in Man, Economy, and State, the the market achieves better outcomes. This is another example of how legislation distorts law. In, in, In some states, there's these affirmative consent laws now. So before having sexual intercourse, there has to be affirmative consent from each individual that they agree to participate in this act, which is nonsense. And like, because if the, if affirmative consent does not occur, well then the, the male or I guess the female too, it it doesn't really matter, can be accused of rape, which is, which is ridiculous. So I think this is another example of where legislation gets in and, 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 you know, corrupts natural law. I think it's another reason to put the provision of this, of the service of, of rights protection into the, into the hands of, of private enterprise um, that has the customer's interest at heart, right? We know that the state does not have the citizens or the customer's interests at heart. So it doesn't have to. Uh, it, its income is derived through coercion, not through voluntary action. So just because the fact in the, in the private market, because it is the customer's will who is served, we would see a better resolution of these rape and alleged rape disputes. So even though we can disagree about exactly how the principle of non-aggression should be applied in some cases like with children and and, and like with uh, rape uh, or teenage sex, um, we can can agree that the market would do things better, (laughs) I think. So... Even though it is, it is a little fuzzy, uh, I, I think we should trust private entrepreneurs to provide the service of rights protection more so than we should the state. I want to read you Austin Peterson's sort of uh, brief definition of minarchist government that you printed in your blog, just, just briefly, so we can kind of go from there on it. And according to Austin, he says, if government is to exist, its number one job is to protect citizens' liberties, and after that, to protect their lives through a reasonable national defense that is not overly interventionist 
or burdensome on its taxpayers, citizens should absolutely be free to seek the means of self-defense and should not be prohibited from exercising those means vigorously to defend their own lives, liberty, and property. What do you mm-hmm. see wrong with that statement, with, with his view of government? <laughs> well, I, I see a lot. Um, there's some little problems. You know, how, how do we know what is to be considered overly interventionist or overly burdensome but which is interesting because this big problem with non-aggression is that there's a lack of a definition there but really the terms overly interventionist and overly burdensome are pretty much in the same categories as far as i'm concerned sure sure. well i I may disagree with you about uh whether or not private property rights can be objectively interdeterminately decided upon. But uh, my, my bigger issue with this particular passage is that, that it's internally contradictory. Um, what Peterson does here is he assigns to the state the right to individuals' property. Yet at the same time, he assigns to individuals the right to the same property. He's established a system of overlapping, overlapping rights. Yet at the same time, he endorses the notion of defensive property. So look, if I have a right to my pair of sandals, and you as the government also have a right to my pair of sandals, and we both have a right to defend our property, well then who's right? Uh, it sounds like a recipe for conflict on one end. A recipe for disaster. It, it, I think it, it, it guarantees conflict. Instead of eradicating it, which should be the purpose of political philosophy. We should be considering ourselves with how do we eliminate conflict? How do we set up institutional workings between people in society to eradicate conflict rather than guarantee it? And I think a system in which you grant the state rights over the same property as you grant rights to the individual, you've created an... an inherent problem, and I think that's contradictory to the purpose of political philosophy and of the non-aggression principle and libertarianism in particular. Uh, well, we're discussing property rights and, and people's right to sort of do as they please with their property as long as they are not violating the natural rights of others. Do you believe that people have the right to sort of take their property and, and combine with their adjoining neighbors and forming systems of law? Systems of, you may not want to call them government. I mean, it depends on where you're coming from. Some anarchists are fine with the word government, just as in terms of governance and governing our fellow man, governing our property, whereas, I don't know if you would call that government or not, but basically, I, we can talk about the words all day long, but... I mean, would you see a problem with, say, 10 property owners? Maybe it's not a free market. Maybe they don't want, you know, private companies coming in and and adjudicating their issues. But maybe they, within their own property, have decided we're going to come up with this common system of courts and law. And you might argue that might not be economically efficient or what have you. But in terms of the scope of rights, would you see any issue with that? No, not at all. And, And so I think there is a helpful distinction between government and governance. I think people are perfectly capable of freely, privately governing themselves and their behaviors. I mean, the market governs behavior. It punishes losers and rewards winners. This is a form of governance. Um, In today's vernacular, government tends to um, imply the notion of coercion. And anybody that discusses government typically agrees that this institution should have the right to coerce against others. So I, I wouldn't call it government because I, I want to distinguish away from coercion. 
Um, but yeah, private associations of governance are perfectly legitimate. And there's examples of this in today's world. You've got uh, homeowners associations where prior to purchasing a home in the association, you agree to certain covenants and conditions of contract to say, you know, you'll upkeep, you'll have, you'll do regular upkeep around the house. You won't paint it crazy colors. Uh, you'll park your car in your driveway, not on the street. And prior to buying, uh, the individual prospective buyer agrees to this up front. Um, so I, I, have, I have no issue with that sort of a private association uh, at all. Sure, and I'm using the example of 10, but uh, just to keep it simple, of 10 property owners, but really, in principle, this could apply to 10,000 property owners, 10 million property owners. That might be unrealistic, but if they literally, and I'm talking about actual consent, actually forming an organization, not kind of what we have today where, yes, we have the United States government and it's a republic and it's a federation. And and frankly, I don't even see a problem with that structure per se. What the problem is, is that this original structure, these borders and, and these agreements were sort of made by a certain set of people for everyone else in the land. They were never made based on the actual private property and, and the actual consent of the citizens. Maybe if that were passed down in generations through property owners to property owners, we could argue there was a consensual form of government or governance, however you want to say it. Whereas, you know, when you try to take that and act like that's what we live in today, well, that, that's where we have a problem because clearly that's not how our system is founded or, or funded or how it acts. Right. The, the idea of, of coercion versus consent is absolutely central to analyzing these sorts of issues. And that applies to both Tom and Austin. I, a half hour into that thing, neither of them had mentioned the word consent, which just blew my mind. I'm just I'm sitting there waiting for them to mention it, and no one brought brought up that word. I'm so glad. Yeah, I'm so glad you mentioned that. I think so often, um, and this is one of my big beefs with economics and the mainstream and the academy is the the idea of justice is just ignored. It never comes up. You know when when does justice when does injustice occur and what are the conditions of justice? Um, th- this is this is the problem that Coase and Demzets and all the other utilitarians in economics uh, succumb to. They had no conception of justice. And well, Walter Block says that if you don't if you can't distinguish between consent and aggression, then don't do political economy. Don't get into it because it's central to the entire analysis. Um, and I guess in some respects, since there, a, a lot of people don't talk about it, it gives me something to talk about. You know, it, it, it gives me something to write about. But I, I think the, the notion of coercion versus consent is just so fundamental. I couldn't agree more. And that's one of the reasons I do this show is because I think in many ways, the issue of justice should be at the forefront of any sort of liberty movement. I mean, if we're not striving for a just society, then then what are we striving for? And and obviously, a term like that could be twisted by uh, different people with different ideologies. Some people might think a just society is one where everybody is guaranteed the same amount of income or, or something like that. Right. But to me, a just society is where all men are treated equally under the law, where no men or group of men have a greater set of rights than any other man or group of men. Right. And that, that's, I, I bring this up at school sometimes and with others, and people say, exactly, you know, just like you said, someone's conception of justice is half of what's in your wallet. <laughs> you know, that they, would, they view a just world as tearing down the 1% and so forth, regardless of whether or not their wealth was gained consensually or otherwise. So, yes, we do have to define our terms. We have to say what is injustice. Well, 
what constitutes an act of injustice, an act of aggression. And this is what Murray Rothbard and Hans-Hermann Hoppe have contributed so accurately to is defining what property is, uh, building on John Locke and uh, that tradition. And, and they have it. It's all laid out there. I mean, this stuff exists. One more criticism that Peterson brings up that you mentioned in your article as well is that he claims that in an anarchist society, there is no commonly accepted definition of private property. So while we might agree that the private property is is the most important thing to base things on, we can still see that there's some room for conflict there when we can't agree on what a private property is. So how would you address that argument? Right, right. So that argument comes from the, the inherent nihilism, the inherent belief in meaninglessness and nothingness in his system of thought. The example I use to refute this in my article is language because it seems to me as if Peterson's convinced that it is impossible for free individuals to come together voluntarily and agree on meaning. He seems to think that this is just not possible, which is ridiculous. Look at language. The words I'm speaking right now that you and your listeners are hearing can be ingested and then translated into meaning, into particular definite meaning. I call it independently accessible, ascertainable meaning. So it's quite possible, in fact it is possible, it's happening now, that people without a state can form mutually agreed upon meaning of different concepts. And this this is true for language, and this is definitely true for rights. I, I, I say in the article, you know, just look around yourself. You know what you own. Human beings are endowed with this innate, intuitive ability to understand ownership. You know when you go to the store that what's on the shelf is not yours until you pay for it. And we don't need a government to tell us this. And we don't need a government to help us elaborate and codify that definition either. So there's other examples of this sort of nihilism in his thought. He says that rights are innumerable. <laughs> so it's everywhere. Yeah, I mean, if, if rights are innumerable, where, where does it end? Right, <laughs> right. Why are, we, why are we having this conversation in the first place if everything can be rights? So, no, it is possible to develop and establish independently accessible and ascertainable meanings as they relate to concepts in society. Therefore, just like with language, it is possible to establish freely, without the state, a conception of private property rights. There's no reason not to. The only reason that we couldn't is if we say we can't. And, and I, I don't think that's acceptable. Well, Ryan, this is really interesting stuff. I'm glad you were able to come on the show to talk about this stuff for me. One more thing I'm kind of curious about is, I don't know, I, I'm a little bit older than you, and I, I don't really travel in the same circles as, as a lot of the younger crowd. And uh, I don't know, I, I get a lot of funny looks when I, when I talk about this stuff. So how does talking about not just the ideas of liberty, but, but talking about rights and philosophy in sort of a deeper way, which you're, you attempt to do, how does that go over with, I don't know, maybe people, not just maybe your circle of friends and maybe people in your classes. I know you're still finishing up college. How does your peer group, I guess, sort of uh, see this whole conversation? Sure. So I know with the Ron Paul Liberty movement and so forth, there's been a lot of faith placed in young people. I don't know. Some of this might be overblown. Uh, I think young people are a little have a slightly greater propensity to understand freedom and liberty, but it's not necessary. Bernie Sanders is doing just fine with young people. So, and I've, I've actually attended several schools. I, I started at New York University. I did some studying overseas. 
I was in uh, North Carolina for a while, and I'm finishing up here in Northern California, and uh, I, I'm not encouraged by what I see in classrooms. I, I hate to be the <laughs> sort of the bearer of, of, of bad news, but I don't know. It, it, this goes back to my theory of education uh, and, and the state's interest in polluting classrooms and, and diluting the minds of young people. Um, when I speak about these sort of things, you know, people wake up first and and they turn their heads and and hear me speak and and look at me because they've never heard anything like this right it's like you're speaking a a foreign language or you're speaking you just showed up speaking martian and they're like whoa what what?" totally so it it, it's shocking to them um some people i've i've persuaded some people on campus where i go now we have these monthly lectures through a, a privately endowed organization on campus that shockingly invites free market speakers and we had one guy come in and and he had worked with public private partnerships and the health industry in africa and so forth and he was all for these public private partnerships and i asked a question and, and and by the end of his lecture he he wrote me later that day and said you know you've changed my mind wow that's impressive yes this person who was very successful he's like he, he tells me, I'm, I'm going to stop doing what I'm doing now. I'm now reading Ludwig von Mises again. I just picked up Human Action the other day. And so th- there it was. I had the most success I've had with talking to someone face-to-face with somebody who was in maybe his 50s. Wow. You know, so awesome. um, it, it, really, it doesn't depend on age. It, it depends on how much people care about these issues, how much they want coherent, comprehensive truth. Um, some people aren't interested. They they want to do other things. I don't. So it depends. It's very possible this person. I mean, very likely this person was doing good work with this organization, and that uh, the organization was doing some amount of good work in some ways as well. People in the United States Army can go rescue people from a flood and do good work. Right. We can still then criticize why it's not a best idea to organize things coercively and that sort of thing. So he was really seeing things in his sort of little bubble of what he was specifically doing. Whereas it sounds like you opened his eyes to sort of the larger picture of why you know that specific method might not be the most moral or the most efficient or what have you method to organize and and achieve a lot of the things that he may still want to achieve. Right. All right. Well, it's a great conversation. I really liked having you on the show. I know you, this is your very first podcast, so I think you did yes, great, man. And I really liked having you on. Before I let you go, why don't I just let you uh, tell everyone out there how they can find your work and um, you know, feel free to plug away anything else you got going on. Sure. So uh, you can tweet me at Ryan D, the letter D, Griggs. Uh, you can find my website. It's Ryan D. Griggs. Dot S-V-B-T-L-E, like subtle except spelled with a V, dot com. That's where my Austin Peterson article is. Uh, you can find me on Facebook, facebook.com slash ryan.griggs. I'm on LinkedIn at linkedin.com forward slash in forward slash griggs dot ryan. The Smith Center for Private Enterprise at my university, Cal State East Bay in Hayward, has a student essay contest i won like twelve hundred dollars with them this past year writing on things that are that are more applied more economics sort of things um those can be found at the smith uh, just click the link that says student essay contests and feel free to send me a message on any one of those platforms i i love talking about this stuff and i appreciate you having me on today Absolutely. Ryan, I love talking about this stuff, too. That's why I do it a couple times a week here. So thanks again, and we'll talk to you soon. All right, Mark.
Guys, political season is just getting started, and what better time to load up that wardrobe with some great political gear from our friend Dan McCall over at Liberty Maniacs. Liberty Maniacs is your one-stop shop for humorous and liberty-minded t-shirts, posters, mugs, and so much more. And now you can check out the brand new Electoral Dysfunction 2016 line, which includes t-shirts ribbing political candidates such as Donald Trump with the We Shall Overcome shirt, as well as the always popular Santorum Happen shirt. If that wasn't enough, Lions of Liberty listeners get 10% off your entire order by using the code Lions of Liberty at checkout. That's LibertyManiacs.com. Wear something worth saying. There is nothing anybody hates more, believe me, I know, than dealing with medical bills and medical insurance. And for many, the Obamacare regulations have only made things worse. But there is another way, and it's called health sharing. And now our friends at Health Excellence Select have taken this concept to a whole new level by putting together a comprehensive medical care package, which includes 24-7 access to doctors, personalized health care assistance, and a plethora of discounts on medical and dental needs. If you want to learn more, you can hop on a free webinar with our Health Excellence Select rep, Jeff Cantor. You have absolutely nothing to lose by checking it out. To learn more, head over to lionsofliberty.com slash health. All right, friends, I hope you enjoyed my little chat there with Mr. Ryan Griggs. And I don't share his labeling system. You know, I don't refer to myself as a anarcho-capitalist or an Austro-libertarian because I don't base my views on economics. And to me, those are largely economic terms. And now not everyone that uses them makes purely economic arguments. I mean, R Ryan Griggs certainly doesn't make purely economic arguments, as you heard in our interview just there. But to me, I want to leave the economic talk, the economic arguments to... um. Well, people that are into that stuff, I guess. I mean, there's, there's nothing wrong with enjoying economics, enjoying the study of economics and all that stuff, but I just don't base my beliefs on what's economically efficient. Rather, I base my beliefs on a philosophy of liberty, one not arrived at on a whim, one arrived at through reason. And there's nothing wrong with economic arguments to, to back up certain positions when you're questioned by people and that kind of thing. And, and certainly, you know, Ryan and I share a lot of similar views on natural rights. But, you know, ultimately, we have to arrive at our conclusions through an analysis of rights, how we arrive at what rights are and how they apply in the real world. Now, I, I don't need to lay my full view out here today of why I don't call myself an anarchist or a minarchist. I already did that back in episode 120 with, after the Austin Peterson interview. So you can go listen to my wrap-up rant in that episode where I really lay out the full scope of my view uh, and why I don't consider myself an anarchist or a minarchist, which just, I don't know. To me, it's the left-right paradigm of libertarianism. And that's actually an, a, a title of an article that I've yet to write that, that exists stewing in my brain. So maybe I'll get to it one of these days. But I was absolutely thrilled to discuss the issue of rights with Ryan Griggs. It is just so great to see young minds out there thinking about these issues, writing about these issues, discussing with their peer groups, discussing them on podcasts. I mean, this is how we change the world. One conversation at a time. I intend to keep doing just that here at the Lions of Liberty podcast, whether it's my interviews with other libertarians or whether it's in our very fun Libertarians in Living Rooms Drinking Liquor episodes, one of which will be returning next week. And I want to discuss these issues with you guys as well, so be sure to join us on our social media. Facebook.com slash Lions of Liberty is our official Facebook page. You can also search for the Lions of Liberty Forum and come join our private group where we discuss 
all of these concepts, the stuff we talk about in the podcast, the stuff we write about over at our website, lionsofliberty.com. You can find us over on Twitter at Lions of Liberty. We really just want to have a good conversation. You can also email me directly, Mark, M-A-R-C, at lionsofliberty.com. Folks, I'm going to keep doing what I'm doing here, even if you don't like it. Because if you don't like it, you don't have to ever click on this thing again. That's the beautiful thing about our modern technology, about the free market. We can put ourselves out there in any way we want, and people are either going to flock to it or not. <laughs> it's really that simple. And luckily, obviously, I, I wouldn't be doing 123 episodes here if, if enough people weren't tuning in to, uh, to at least make it seem worth my while. So I'm very thankful to everybody out there who has tuned in. And the only thing I ask of you guys is to spread the word. Be our street team. Tell your friends about the show. Tell your family about the show. Post it on your social media. Tweet out our episodes. Share it in any way you like. But if you do enjoy the show, we do ask that you do that, that you share this show, because that's the that's how we're really going to grow. That's how we're going to expand this conversation. That's how we're going to get the whole freaking world talking about rights. Even if they have the wrong ideas about them. <laughs> At least we can get people talking about them. And that's what I intend to keep doing here. Each and every Monday, you can find the show at lionsofliberty.com. You can find us on iTunes, on Stitcher Radio, all the normal places you find podcasts. You can also hear us over on the Liberty Radio Network, lrn.fm, where we play throughout the week. You can also hear us at libertytalk.fm at 6 p.m. Eastern every single Saturday and Sunday. Until next week, folks, live long and live free.